0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And making his triumphant return to the show is Mr. J.J. J. French from Twisted Sister. Welcome back, my man. What's up?
1: Oh, man, I'm reading your book. Awesome. And I'm loving it for many, many reasons, not the least of which was I drove that Trans Canada highway, uh, both with Twisted Sister, during a, a tour in the 85, in which we actually drove from from uh, Halifax to um, Vancouver and passed Terry Fox on the way. Hey, that's cool. We actually passed the Terry Fox caravan. That's awesome. That was, yeah, we knew what was going on at the time. That's Spent cool. Spent the coldest day of my life in Winnipeg. The coldest day of my life. <laughs> yeah. It's the coldest damn place on the planet Earth. It is. And uh, I think I've said this before. The good thing about it is there's no drug dealers on the corner. That's and right.
0: That's right. It's Portage and, that. and
1: if And if there are they they are hardworking working people okay? <laughs> and um so so that's and and i have to say the canadian rockies are better than american rockies okay you got it <laughs> they're bigger they're bigger they're more majestic and they're emptier <laughs> than the american rockies and then there's your book in which first you had to travel through the rockies in order to then deal with the song contest or the song comparisons that you and your friend decided to illustrate as part of their lives. And I have to admire the importance that you give these songs in making you who you are, giving you the foundation of probably everything you believe in. I mean, it's, it's impressive.
0: Oh, thank very. you. Thank you. I appreciate that
1: very much. I am in the middle of writing my book. Um, well, the band's been together 40 years, so it's going to take about 30 to write the book to give you an idea of how, how, <laughs> we want to give you sense of of years yeah kind of like our documentary why is it two hours and ten minutes long well because we wanted to make it feel as long as it was couldn't make it 180 hours long but we couldn't do it in two so the book is is coming it's sometime in 2018
0: awesome one thing I've always liked about Twisted Sister is that you guys put in your 10,000 hours in the bars you know what I mean you paid your dues and you think about bands like I don't want to shit talk anybody but you think about bands like The Strokes right so people yeah. were saying 1998, the band's going to be the next really great rock and roll band, and they just kind of flamed out. And I, I, I feel like that happened because they didn't put in their 10,000 hours of of, of bar uh, dates, you know.
1: Could be part of the reason. E- easy come, easy go. What I I tend to describe Twisted Sister as an iceberg. You know, when you see the show, you see a shiny tip above the surface. You don't see the the uh, gravitas beneath the
2: surface. Yeah.
1: And all those years in the bars, those 10,000 hours. And by the way, it's funny you should say it, because after reading Gladwell's book, I went back to do an analysis of how many hours we actually did play prior to, or how many hours we dedicated to our live, uh, to the life of rock and roll prior to getting signed with our record deal. Right. And essentially, uh, 12 hours of every single day for those 10 years We're dedicated in the waking hours of trying to be successful. Mm. But in terms of taking the hours of rehearsal and performance, I came up with um, about 9,800 hours worth of actual playing time. There you go. Prior to our record deal. So um, that's why we knew we were good. I mean, you may not like the band because you don't like the way we look or whatever, but you can't deny the the, uh, musicality. We put our time in.
0: Absolutely agree. Okay, man, you have got a list of uh, some great tunes here. So uh, we're going to start off with The Beatles and the entire side two of Abbey Road.
1: I saw Paul McCartney two nights ago.
0: Oh, you saw that? That's awesome. Yeah, he
1: played the entire side two of Abbey Road.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great.
1: So so as great as The Beatles are, and they are the beginning and the end of just about everything, and all the accolades they get, I would say that their parting shot to the world, the last statement they made, um, with Abbey Road and Side Two,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, what a way to end a career! What a way! If you think about it, their last song is, and in the end, the love you take is either than is, is greater than the love you make. Oh my! What a profound statement! Yeah. I mean, it is the most profound statement. It is the greatest statement. It's mm-hmm. a statement that should be on tombstones. It is a religious statement. If you think about the purity of the goodness that religion is supposed to be about mm-hmm. and not the guilt and the hellfire and all this stuff, but just about the, the sanctity and purity of the human condition. They summed it up and it ended their last on the, the side two of their last record. I mean, what more do you need to say? I could have picked any one of a billion Beatles songs. So I want to hold your hand the first time I heard it to what it did to me, but I would say that Abbey wrote is a final statement, by a band that is the greatest band that was that is the reason why all of us are doing what we're doing yeah there's absolutely no way you can ever understate it or, or underhype it yeah without them there ain't no us yeah. without them ain't no nothing they are it clear the big bang side two of Abbey Road is a testament to enormous ridiculous over the top artistry
0: yeah. Well, said, I agree. Um, you know, I always thought that that last bit, the end of that medley, very succinctly wrapped up <clears throat> not just that record, but you know their entire career.
1: yeah, a hundred percent it did. It brings tears to my eyes, and you know, as as McCartney's show was going on, by the way, the guy played three hours with no break.
0: That's so great.
1: to 11.15. The only break was when he popped out for an encore. And Billy Joel came out and did two songs. Oh, Jesus. Because Billy Joel is on Island, So he came out and he did Get Back and Your Birthday.
0: Where where was this?
1: At Nassau Coliseum.
0: Oh, Oh, wow.
1: So... Uh, I'd seen McCartney four years ago, and he his, his song list was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, and I always thought, man, he should end with the end. What, what how, did, how best way to end any career? That's the greatest thing. Well, he came back for the encore. He did yesterday,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yesterday on acoustic guitar, and then he did Helter Skelter, <laughs> and then they did side two. It ended with that. And in the end, oh. that's great. Uh, I can just. What are you going to say? Even if I wanted to critique the show based upon was he did he look a little older? Did he was his voice a little tired? It's freaking Paul McCartney. Exactly. I I can't. It is impossible for me to be objective. Yep. His music imbues in my body everything about their music is, is why I do what I do. So to be able to s- sit there for three hours and just watch this guy who changed your life yeah. uh, was was it was glorious. Yeah, I love you, Paul. I love you, Paul. Just love you. He case you hear this interview.
0: <laughs> yeah, He's a regular listener.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Don't sleep to Liverpool. Isn't that his show?
0: Exactly. Right? <laughs> he's got that from me. Now, he, uh, he, you'll agree with me when I say this. I've said this several times. He's, in my opinion, the most prolific songwriter in the history of popular music.
1: Well, here's the thing. Think about this. I, I wrote this in my Goldmine magazine piece on Sergeant Pepper a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. I wrote that the staggering amount of music they created from the from "I Want to Hold Your Hand" to Sgt. Pepper. Yep. understand that's three years. Yeah. In our day, Brent, you know, an album comes out once every three years. Yeah. Pep Leopard every three years. The Beatles released nine studio
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Two movies, nine albums, thirty singles. In those, 36, in those 39 months, right. I want to hold your hand to Sergeant Pepper. Is that not mind-blowing? You want yeah. to talk about prolific? You don't have to say anything more than that. That just shuts the door on that one.
0: Exactly.
1: I mean, to think that him and Lennon could sit in a room and a guy says, we have a movie, I need seven songs, and they go, okay, call us tomorrow at 4.
0: <laughs> and they'll be ready, yeah.
1: And here's your seven songs. How do you do that? <sighs>
0: they're, they're, do do that? Literally a hit machine, Paul McCartney. Like, literally.
1: Well, him and John, if you think about uh, what the two of them did together, and of course, Paul's career after that was crazy, but it's staggering to think. To, I mean, I'm a, a, a Jumbo John Lennon fan, so let me mm-hmm. put this out there, too, that when Paul McCartney did Yesterday and then John did In My Life, which was his version of Yesterday, yeah. is there a more poignant Beatles song than In My Life? I don't think so. I think there's a more emotionally engulfing song where Paul can be observational, we do know Lennon can be more emotional. And, and Paul's observations can, you know, when he does stuff like Maybe I'm Amazed or mm-hmm. On the Winding Road, I believe it's from the heart. Yep. But My Life um, is, is one of the greatest Beatles songs for me. But anyway, the two of them, they're the, they're the Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein. They are the greatest songwriters of our generation. And um, with a ridiculous list of unbelievable songs. And if you're a musician, and you don't know them, or you you kind of go, eh, I'm not really a Beatle fan, I'm more of a this fan, I'm going to make this statement, you're an idiot. <laughs> Listen, I don't care at the end of the day that you like, you know, that you like, um, you know, the Schmageggies from your hometown, I don't care. If you don't understand the foundation of all of it, now, they will tell you, the John and Paul will tell you, that without... You know, Roy Orbison, and without the Berry, brothers, and without Elvis, and without Chuck Berry, there wouldn't be Beatles, and they're right, because mm-hmm. everything starts from somewhere. But they, the big bang they created was the perfect synthesis of all of, of those inspirations coming together.
0: Agree. And next, sir, you have David Bowie with
1: Oh, You Pretty Things, which I love yeah well, this is an important change in my life. So here I am. if the Beatles were my Saturn rocket, the one that blasted me off
2: mm-hmm.
1: Bowie was my was my second stage rocket okay right and it's important to know the difference. The Beatles lifted me off the launch pad as as it did a generation mm. Mm-hmm and took me to the age of 20, in which they disposed of us, you know. At 20, they went, you know, because I was 12 when they landed, I was 20 when they walked away. They were one of the only bands that ever said, we're done with you, before we said, we're done with you. Yeah. they said, done with you, guys. Thank you very much, goodbye. So what was the next phase? And Bowie, when I saw Bowie, when I got the Bowie album, when I uh, got Ziggy, along with Mott, and along with Lou Reed's Transformer, in a package with a, with a magazine, Oh, cool. It blew my mind and altered my view of image and turned me into a glam guy. immediately went back because I didn't know about Hunky Dory yet, right? When I heard, oh, you pretty things, you know, I was 20. I was evolving into this pretty thing, Mm -hmm. you know, hair shagged and blonde and all this stuff. I never looked at myself sexually ever. I didn't think of myself that way ever. Okay, It hit me at the right place at the right time for my development, and he spoke to me. So so changes, oh, you pretty things, and then changes – which is on the same record as Hunky Dory, blew me away and made me obsessive about Bowie to a point of just craziness. And that led to, of course, Ziggy, which was Bowie's Sgt. Pepper, for lack of a better way to describe what I consider to be his most life-changing and most pivotal and tentpole record. Would you agree?
0: Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, I would say my my favorite Bowie record is probably Hunky Dory. You know, I loved Quicksand, Life on Mars is great, um, but All oh, You Pretty Things and Changes were... were I mean, there, there isn't, with the exception of something like maybe Eight Line Poem, which is kind of bizarre, there isn't really a bad song in the record.
1: No, there isn't really. And, and, and listen, then you go up to Man Who Sold the World. Yes, okay. the know, Superman.
0: And, exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, phenomenal stuff. So Discovering Bowie was transformative me and um, those songs are transformative for my development and um, can never be denied when I hear them you know on, hair on the back of my neck will always stand up and yes. go, this is what so they were the booster rockets and the Beatles were first stage and Bowie was the booster rocket that's why those songs that's why all that's why the Bowie Mont Reed songs are there
0: I like the that I, I like that little metaphor I might steal that from you
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> in my next book <laughs> uh-huh.
1: I'm going to get mine out first.
0: Okay. <laughs> we'll have a race.
1: Otherwise, I'll go, it's exactly what Brent Jensen said in his book. <laughs>
0: I'll give you credit. <laughs> All right, so your next tune is uh, ACDC, A Whole Lot of Rosie.
1: You know, Mark Mendoza, our bass player, yeah. was the Dictators. And the Dictators opened for AC/DC back in 1975. Ah. So he played many shows with Bon Scott. Yep. When I heard ACDC for the first time, I froze in place. I just thought, what a great raw rock band. No fake sexuality. What I really believed what they were saying, like how they were, how they were describing their life was funny, sarcastic, sardonic. Yep. Witty as hell. Bon Scott had the sneering vocal. Yep. And we used to play a whole lot of Rosie on stage. And it was one of my favorite all-time songs to ever play. Mm-hmm. ACDC is one of my favorite all-time bands. And Brian Johnson came out on stage and played a whole lot of Rosie with us in England.
0: Oh, that's great! Days. I didn't know that. And
1: I have a video of it, and it's one of my all-time favorite experiences of my life. Awesome it was to have Brian Johnson on stage doing a whole lot of Rosie with us. And at the end of the, he walked off stage and he goes and he said, "Laddie, I've never heard an audience scream that much." And I looked at him. I said, "Brian." I love you for saying it, but you're full of shit. <laughs> so, thank you for saying it. Thank you, but you're full of shit. Your band's one of the greatest bands. Thank you very much for trying to make me feel better about my band. <laughs> but your band is one of the greatest bands that ever so, ever lived, and you're an amazing singer, and thank you. But I have a video of us doing it, and Ho Rosie, it's power. It's not just its vocal, not just the lyrics, yeah. but the power of the song is something that makes me a happy person when I hear it.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Brings back everything about A C D C to me that's great.
0: Yeah. I, I knew that you guys covered that, but I was gonna ask you, what what kind of songs did you guys use to sound check? Do you do A C D C stuff? Or just... Well you know,
1: that's a that's an interesting question. That goes back how many years and how many different lineups at what point was the band going? Yeah. You know, in the earliest earliest days when the band was first starting out, we we did Bowie songs. Okay we also did rolling stone songs yeah. because Goatshead soup was big in those days and, and and so was it's only rock and roll but i like it so we did that mm-hmm. we did alice cooper songs we also did smoke on the water because smoke on the water was the biggest hit of the summer of 73 so every yeah. band had to do that yeah that's not a that's not a glam record i think you'll admit you know it's just a great great song yeah we did we're an american band because that was a huge hit yeah so we were looking like women and we played we played a bunch of Slade songs, and we played Lou Reed songs, and we mm. played Mott songs, we played Bowie songs, and we played other material. So at Soundcheck, we would maybe play the Bowie medley, which were three songs from
2: Ziggy. Nice. As
1: time went on, when Dee joined, and we morphed into the, the more Rocky Horror transvestite-looking, <laughs> which is what we did, Rocky Horror's success was, I'm very happy for that, because we, you know, because Dee definitely doesn't look pretty. <laughs> I'm not being like you know. I mean, I, I make jokes. Uh, I introduce him on stage as looking like Sarah Jessica Parker dipped in a bat of acid, <laughs> and, and I introduce him that way. And he's got a great sense of humor. He laughs. I mean, he, you know, but he's not. He's not. You know, this isn't pretty glam. This is like ugly glam. And so, uh, you know, when D joined, we, we, we turned harder. We went to Cooper. You know, Alice Cooper, and mm-hmm. then, and eventually sabbath which wasn't a glam band but we would do a sabbath song or a dio song cool you know so it changed over time okay you know it would be an easy AC- song a dio song a sabbath song eventually as we were writing originals we would we would sound check with um with our own oh i'll tell you a song that was that we that we sound checked with a lot it just hit me right now yeah breaking the law priest
0: oh nice really
1: yeah and we're gonna start when whenever that record came out i'm not sure was it 79 80 somewhere 81 whatever it was 80 i whenever think it, album came out we used to do Breaking the Law and we used to that was our go to soundcheck song for two years, probably.
0: Nice. It's a great tune.
1: We did love Priest. I loved them. I played a lot with them and uh and did love them a lot.
0: Are they good dudes?
1: oh uh, they were very um they were very nice. <laughs> were all nice. We played with them in nineteen eighty. Yeah. And um, we opened for them in New Jersey, uh, on, in Asbury Park, on the boardwalk. Oh, cool! Track. Wow. Uh, and uh, you know, we were a very popular local band at the time, mm-hmm. and we were probably as responsible for selling tickets as they were. Uh-huh. we were very, very popular. It was a 2,300 seat theater. Yeah. And um, uh, I remember very clearly, as good as I thought we were,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I thought we were very good. A priest took us to school that night, really? and I. Watched their whole show, and 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 did everything I could to steal every move I saw. <laughs> so I went, wow! And you know, people came up to us and went, "You were great. You blew Priest off the stage." I said, "Thank you for saying that, but that's really not true." Yeah, they're a phenomenal band, uber professional, super super tight. The guitar sound was great. I asked Glenn Tipton how he got his guitar sound. Yeah, and he ex- explained to me the marshals they used and how they processed them, and then we immediately copied them immediately. Really, Yeah. I- guitar tone so they didn't use 100 watt marshals they used 50 watts. we switched to 50s we ganged them together three together just like they did mm-hmm. we wanted that incredibly harmonious perfectly linked distorted metal guitar sound yeah and that was taken directly from the gig we played with Priest
0: wow that's cool what kind of guitar did he play he played Washburn I don't remember
1: oh uh, uh, he played uh, KK played uh, V he,
0: he played Gibson's all the time I know that Gibson's
1: and, and and oh god I don't remember
0: what he, I, I he played I don't know maybe like a Washburn or an ESP or something like that it was a metal yeah
1: guitar. maybe I don't, I don't remember I just remember uh, I remember watching KK leaning back with that V
0: yeah
2: the
1: that, stage moves were so freaking great yeah and like just standing there and he's not he's a short guy yeah he was like six maybe I'm six you know with heels I'm six six yeah but he looked like he was six six you know yeah. and I remember going remember that move. Steal that movie? It's so impressive. (laughs) They were so impressive. They were so tight. And uh, I I loved them. Great guys.
0: They're a fantastic band. All right. Next up, sir, you have uh, Mott the Hoople and All the Young Dudes.
1: Well, again, I got the Bowie album, the Lou Reed album, and All the Young Dudes, and All the Young Dudes is one of those songs. Yep. Which sounds like it could be written by John and Paul. It's got that great chord arrangement. Yep. And it's and it's perfectly done. And of course, if you think about this, Brent,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what did Bowie and Mott and Lou have in common in 1972? All their records were either produced by Bowie and Ronson,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or they had songs by Bowie and Ronson on the records. That's true. That's what unified them. That's what gave them to me. That was the troika. That was there was the synergy, the the the, the connectivity. Yeah. You know, you had, you had Transformer. That was produced by Bowie and Ronson. Yeah. Uh, you, you had Ronson playing sax solo on all the, on the walk on the wild side. I yeah. And I you know, mean.
0: You, you can I hear think, that when you, when you listen to songs like Queen Bitch from Hunky Dory, you can hear Lou Reed and, and you know.
1: Yeah. Oh, and, and how much was he? Bowie was Velvet Underground were his heroes. He has a song about Andy Warhol for crying out loud. Exactly. So, so this was this, kind of new world i moved into i moved away from beatles and all that stuff to this dark bowie reed mott andy warhol kind of thing because you know velvets were a heroin you know soaked or band out in new york so they were darker than the stones like they were more authentically darker yeah so you were kind of getting off on their darkness and then bowie's pop sensibility with their darkness and and mott's you know being a great man. mott was to me they were like the stones to me they were like a rock band we played with Mott in 1973 I'll never forget that great experience yeah our first time we ever opened for a big band was opening up for Mott the Hoople at the Sunshine Inn in Asbury Park in 1973 and although our fans came down and said you guys are great I went yeah really Mott just kicked our ass thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much Mott was great
0: very cool Uh, Next, continuing the trend, is Velvet Underground and White Light, White Heat.
1: Well, I sang that song in the bars for years. Mm -hmm. We did a bunch of Velvet songs, but we did White Light, White Heat. And again, God created Lou Reed so I could do cover material. (laughs) Um, And uh, I mean, when you think about Sweet Chain and White Light, White Heat, these were big songs for us in the bars.
2: Yeah,
1: Big songs for me. Um, Loved it. Uh, Loved the attitude of the song. I thought the band was just, I wanted to be sinister enough like them. And mm-hmm. they were sinister. So White Light, White Heat was exemplary. And it was the kind of music that fit in with Twisted at the time. It yes. Works. Not every song worked. You know, you try them at, at uh, rehearsals. Yeah. Some songs did. We did Vicious. Yeah. Sweet Jane, White Light, White Heat. Uh, maybe we did Heroin. I can't remember if we did Heroin at some point. But um, we did Vicious all the time. Yeah. You know, it was weird, too, because, believe it or not, we did cover one Eagles song in our life. What was it? It was Victim of Love.
0: <laughs> what? Really?
1: Yeah. And we used to go from vicious to victim of love on stage. Yeah. No
0: way. What was the crowd reaction yeah, to that?
1: Was 77. You know, I don't know. I, I can't, you know, first of all, the band doesn't remember it, but I do. <laughs> so maybe in their collective memories they choose to not want to remember. That's think what it that- is. You know, we certainly didn't do a Fleetwood Max song, so thankfully we didn't do <laughs> something. We didn't do landslide, which would have just been ridiculous. But we did do Victim of Love because it was heavier. There was a slide guitar part. Okay. And I remember playing the slide guitar and I was thinking, we should do an Eagle song. What's the heaviest Eagle song? And I thought Victim of Love was the heaviest Eagle song. Wow. So I think that's why we picked it. But anyway, um so all the again, the, all the Lou Reed slash Velvet Mott slash Bowie, all those were all connected in their own way, similarly, in terms of why I picked those songs for, for your list.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, continuing, the, the next song you've got here is by Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side, classic.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and that used to close out our third set.
0: Oh, really, eh? Yeah, yeah. So how did you play it? Was it a heavier?
1: No. Uh, no. No? No, no. Um, D never sang the third set with us. Oh. It was just, D, D sang the first two and always just sat in the dressing room for the third and recuperated. Wow. So we'd never leave the club because he didn't want to. Um, he didn't want to take away the focus of the band, which was kind of cool. Okay. You know, we always wanted the fans to. He never left the club. He would sit in the back and we would go on and do third set and I would end with, Walk on the Wild Side. And it was no, it was very, to me just on electric guitar, low volume. You know. Really. And, the, and yeah, and I had a bass player, Kenny, who could play the bass part perfectly, and Mark eventually picked a, up on it. Um, uh, but walk on the walls was what was my signature. That and Sweet Jane were my signature
0: song. Okay, well, and same for Sweet Jane, I'm sure, right? Just same yeah, same Yeah, range, Well, we but... used
1: to do the Sweet Jane Gong show, which I won't get into right <laughs> now. Now was a whole other. That was a, that was twisted and and our um, cabaret performance levels where we had, used to feed alcohol to people to drink and sing along so they'd stumble and sound stupid and then the audience would scream if they were a woman gang the bitch and it was a guy's gong the motherfucker because my drummer had a big gong because we played right. Queen's I Your Mother Down yes and one night I just wanted to get the audience riled up so I said who wants to sing Sweet Jane with me and we brought up three or four people and they weren't singing enough or they weren't loose enough so I would hand out some drinks and then as summer went on i handed out more drinks but because i don't drink i don't know what makes people drunk because i don't drink i don't know what one shot two shots, three shots four shots i don't know what an eight ounce glass of wild turkey does to you i know it sounds crazy i never drink stuff so i don't know and as the summer wore on and we got people to drink more booze and sing the song badly and funnier yeah. the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger and the summer of 77 we had two gong shows one in in uh, Nassau County, one in the Hamptons. And the final gong shows at the end of the summer was the Drink to You Vomit gong show because people were throwing up. We had so much alcohol <laughs> garbage can at stage and people were throwing up and the one who threw up the most one. And then the last one was the Drink you Drop Dead gong show in which I was informed by a bartender that i have given enough alcohol to technically kill a human being cool. and the winning prize of that was a case of beer which we handed it to the kid and the kid just dropped and collapsed on the stage because he just drank 32 ounces of alcohol I don't even know how he why we gave him a case of beer. <laughs> so, yeah. and here you go you're drinking here's a case of beer <laughs> But anyways, Walk on the Wild Side was a was a very it was a signature song for me, and it closed out the night.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, and next, actually, you have Satellite of Love, which is a great well, song.
1: Always never excuse me, Lou Reed's never known for vocals. Yeah. But if it ever sounded like the Beatles sang on a Lou Reed song, yeah. Listen to Satellite of Love. Yeah. It is that album. First of all, Transformer is unbelievably great. Yep. The songs are unbelievably great. The production is pristine, exceptional, and Satellite of Love you know is all Bowie. How he managed to get Lou to sing a song and not sound terrible on the way to the greatest ending of a song that could ever be on a record, yep. it ends with those extraordinary harmonies, you, which sounds almost like Because by the Beatles. Yeah,
0: you can hear Bowie at the end singing the backups.
1: God, it's and Lou sings it perfectly. His atonality. Yeah. Against the majestic, angelic vocals of Bowie and Ronson. Yeah. Well, if you haven't heard it, listen to it. You'll, yeah. you'll say to yourself, "That's my favorite Lou Reed song." That's yeah. for people who don't like Lou Reed.
0: That is true. I don't know if I'd call it necessarily a ballad, but it's it's got that really nice chord change in the chorus that I've always loved.
1: Yeah. It's and and, and Lou is delicate. You know what I mean? He, yeah. He's not hamming about it. He actually dances through the minefields of horrible vocals. Yeah. <laughs> With extraordinary class and taste. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, we're gonna finish up here with two Oasis tracks. First one's Live Forever.
1: Yeah, okay. So here's the deal. I stopped loving bands in seventy two. Yep. Until Oasis. Really? My friend worked for Sony and he sends me the first album mm-hmm. and I play it and I fall in love with this band. Really? I have to go see him. So they come to New York, and they play... Um, oh, let me just... There's a reason why I'm going to bring this up. When I saw Bowie, yep. the first show ever in 1972, in September of 72, he played Carnegie Hall. Okay. And most people don't remember that. They remember the Radio City show. They don't remember the Carnegie Hall show. Mm-hmm. At the Carnegie Hall show, there was no props. He came out dressed as Ziggy, but they, except for a backdrop, they had no stage. There was no staging. It was very raw. And... Um, and um, they ran out of songs at the end, and they did a Chuck Berry medley, which, dressed in drag, I thought was kind of ballsy. Yeah. That they ended with Johnny Be Good and Round and Round, because, you know, that's Bowie, and he did have a bigger catalog, so why he didn't dip into the catalog, I don't know. Yeah. But they played a couple of, of, of Chuck Berry songs, and I was always kind of astonished by that. And actually, I, I, I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. It was really cool, because it shows he's a real rock and roller, right? Yeah. So. Uh, we played with Uriah Heep at a festival several years ago, and I'm in an elevator, and and Trevor Boulder, from bass player from Uriah Heep, is in the elevator. Yeah. He's now, but he was Bowie's bass player. Yeah. So you know you get to meet your heroes at, in the most, in the strangest locations. Yeah. And here I am in a hotel in Madrid, and here's Trevor Boulder and me.
2: Yeah.
1: And I go, Trevor Boulder, J.J. from Twisters. So, oh, right, right, right. I said, I got to tell you, man. I just got to tell you, I saw the spiders. A lot, and I saw you guys play Carnegie Hall. Was I crazy, or did you guys play a couple of Chuck Berry songs? He goes, No, we did, we ran out of material. <laughs> 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 okay, great. All right, so now Oasis. I go to see Oasis at a little bar in New York where they first played the first show, yep. first time ever, yep. and they ran out of songs and they did a couple of Chuck Berry <laughs> songs at the end, which is kind of cute. And then they came back out and they played the exact. They played their set again because they needed to play more songs, and they repeated their set. Yeah, uh, I thought Oasis was great, and they came back again and again and again. And I probably saw them. They played a lot in that first two years, between that and definitely maybe this, uh, the the um, I rather definitely maybe was the first one, or what's the story? Morning Glory was the second. That's right. Yeah. Between those two albums, '96 and '97, I saw them every show in New York. They played about 12 times in two years. Wow. And I I I, I just loved them. Look. The Beatle comparison is obvious. Yeah. Their chords are what they are. Yeah. I thought um, Noel Gallagher's songwriting was incredible. I thought his lyrics were incredible. Yeah. I fell in love with them. I was infatuated with them. Uh, it was the last band I really felt that way about. Yeah. So and, it was, and I felt better about myself, too, because I thought to myself, am I ever going to like anybody again like I liked all these other bands? And I tell this to people. They go, Oasis, I don't like that band. I just think in <laughs> They fight all the time, and they're just stupid, and I I don't care.
0: Yeah.
1: But I to think their music is great. So
0: that's a great and, feeling, isn't it, when you discover a band like that?
1: Oh, well, that you can love. Yes. And so when I see people they're really passionate, you know. Okay, fine. I mean, you're supposed to have passion. Yeah. But this. this is what makes you you. It's that's supposed the, to be great.
0: Exactly. It's the whole point. So of music. Uh,
1: yeah. So Oasis was the last band that I felt that about. Wow.
0: No bands since Oasis have you no. fell in love no. with, really?
1: No. i admired plenty of things. Gone to a lot of shows. You know, I saw Cat Stevens last year. He put on one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen in my life. Did not expect it to be as great as it was. And I'm so critical in shows that I always tell people, don't ask me to go to a show with you because I'm miserable. I'm the Andy Rooney. Of, <laughs> I am, and I don't mean to be, but really don't ask me my opinion because... I will tell you my opinion, it's usually like the set was too long, the arc of the performance wasn't right, he missed the lighting cue on this song, the sound sucks on this one, I'm like, and I, it's a drag, and my, my niece told me that once, you know, I took her to see an excess, yeah. and I'm standing there and I'm critiquing, she goes, will you shut the fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the show. And I realized, I have no right to make her hate it, because I'm sure the shows that I saw, plenty of things were bad in the shows I saw, but I didn't have anybody telling me how bad it was, Yeah. I'm the worst guy in the world to go to a show with. Like, don't ask me to go, or don't ask me my opinion. Really, don't. Just shut up and enjoy it, and don't ask my opinion. <laughs> People pay attention to my opinion and this stuff. I went to see Cat Stevens, and on a scale of one to ten, it was a ten plus. He was his song choices were. First of all, his catalog is ridiculous. Secondly, yeah. uh, the arc of his performance was spectacular. Yeah. And he just left everybody in tears. I mean, he was as perfect a show as I've and I've only seen mostly heritage artists uh over the last two or three years i went to see steel and dan i saw paul simon these are heritage artists mm-hmm. so you know what you're getting when you're you know hall and oates they were not good unfortunately really uh... paul simon was ridiculously great and he was playing new stuff which i normally don't care about but the band was so good because he only has the best musicians in the world yeah they don't care because the band was so great yeah he was to watch cat was great mccartney you know, like I saw him four years ago with my daughter. He was a bit better than he was the other night, but I'm not going to sit there and critique Paul. I mean, no. God knows. I have, no, I have no right on this earth to do it and will not. Yeah. He played three damn hours. Go ahead. Put that up, motherfucker. Yeah. Three hours. You know, him. It was great. Um, uh, And I'm seeing Ed Sheeran with my wife this week because she loves Ed Sheeran. Okay. And I've been immersing myself in his music to try to become familiar with it so I don't sit there like Andy Rooney.
0: I was going to say... That's I don't know. Uh, if you're going to be Andy, Andy Rooney, you're going to be Andy Rooney for Ed Sheeran.
1: Man. I know nothing about him except that one song, you know, about legs and I the the big, the wedding song that's at every wedding that, that's on the planet Earth.
0: He's got a song called "Shape of You" or something now. Yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's the one. I was just at a wedding. Of course, that was the big song they played at the dance. Yeah. At least it's better than um, "Never My Love" or whatever the hell it used to be in some Neil Diamond. What the bottom <laughs> line is, she wants to see him. I'll go and see Ed Sheeran.
2: Yeah.
1: Her. But otherwise, otherwise, unless a song is so in my face, like Desposito, which I did not know about till I read an industry comment, and then I went online to watch Desposito, and I went, here's my problem with Desposito, okay? First of all, nobody knows that their song is going to become the biggest song in the world. It just happens. That's pop music. And so I don't, I don't fault uh, the singer or Daddy Yankee or Lewis, whatever his name is, mm-hmm. for having... Stream song in the world good for them yeah. I mean, great as far as a song goes it's not particularly an interesting song i mean you know i think you and i spoke about this the four chord song that's up on youtube you've watched that correct yeah for the uh, acts of awesome four chords yeah well when you watch that and you see how we are manipulated as a buying group oh yeah then you listen to desposito it's the same four chords so yeah. once you hear it you go it's another four chord song now let me say this: I'm old enough to say that the '50s doo-wop is the same four chords. There's a mm-hmm. five thousand number one songs, the exact same chord structure. Blues is the same three chord structure.
0: Yeah, one chord less. I,
1: I, yeah, I get it. Okay, I get it. Despizito was a was a crafted, well crafted four chord cliche.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but it was massive, and I'm fully aware of the immersive nature of its massivity. Yeah. It's great, you know. I happen to like Bruno Mars. I think he's really, really good. But when it comes to hard rock and metal bands and my friends sending me stuff, I listen to a track for two minutes and I just kind of lose interest yeah. you know, I, it's not something that's on my radar yeah. it doesn't have to be on my radar, I won't manage bands anymore because there is no music industry for those bands anyway mm-hmm. certainly is if it's country, but country's another music I try my best to listen to it I was in Montana, you know, for a week uh, two weeks ago with my wife yeah. and we're driving around listening to country music stations, you know, and And I swear to God, I wouldn't know the difference in one guy and the other. Now, I know that sounds like my dad because, of course, you know the difference if you care to know the difference. Yeah. I don't care to know the difference.
0: No, I I, I, I I agree.
1: But Alan Jackson, his joke about country music, and he's a country guy. And he said, what happens if you play a country record backwards? The girl comes back, the car comes back, and the dog comes back. Okay. (laughs) He's a country guy, and he says it. He's a country guy. And, by the way, my admiration for nashville musicians is about as high as i can possibly give because i go to nashville a lot and i go into the bars in nashville and i see the greatest musicians in the world
0: oh yeah
1: by the way in new york city on any given night you can walk into a bar and you can watch some really sucky artists yeah and in la you can watch some sucky artists why because the club owners only care about you bringing people in yeah and if you bring 50 of your drunk friends in they don't give a shit what you do on stage Yep. But in Nashville, you cannot suck in Nashville. Oh, I know. I want to write a song called You Ain't Allowed to Suck in Nashville because you'd be ridden out of town. And, I, and I've and i actually spoken to friends of mine down there and said, what is it about this town? What is it about the level of excellence that's demanded from the people who play here? Yeah. There is a level of excellence that's demanded. You don't get on a stage in Nashville. You don't even do it at the airport, Brent. And I mean, you're at the airport in Nashville yep. and you walk into like a TGIF or something. Yep. And there's a brother and sister act singing, and they're 17 years old. Damn if they don't sound like Faith Hill and Tim McGraw.
0: Oh, I know. I've been there probably about four or five times, and as you say, the level of excellence and the the bar is raised so high that the homeless people panhandling on the street blow you away. And I remember, I I, I said to one of the guys, I said, how are you not, you know, A, playing in there, or B, playing somewhere where, you know, for for a, a huge crowd, you're amazing. And he looked at me and he said, there's just not room for all of us.
1: Yeah. he's, You know, you are so right. I walked up to a guitar player in a bar a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. The band was ridiculous. And this guy was like Brad Paisley reincarnated. Like, you know, and he's a young kid. And, yeah. and I said to him, I just said, by the way, I don't know if people out there are paying attention, but I am. And you're an unbelievable player. Yeah. I said, man, I said, this town's full of unbelievable players. And his comment was, yeah, that's the problem.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: He said that's exactly the problem. Everyone's an unbelievable player. And I don't know if it's – and I'm not saying this with any disparaging comment. I really mean it. I don't know if it's religious uh, uh, exposure. In other words, you learn in church. You know what I'm saying? The discipline of being able to sing well and you you better not embarrass this family or whatever. I don't know what it is about the musicians down there and why the level of excellence is so high, but I will have to say Nashville does make the greatest, the best musicians.
0: Oh, I agree. And if you have not been, listeners, head down there. You're in for a treat. There are bands
1: everywhere
0: you look, and every one of them is great.
1: I love I love going to Nashville to watch the excellence of the
0: musicians. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, my man, that is uh, your song list. Thank you very much again for a great chat. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for um, your support. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody, I write for uh, Goldmine Magazine, which is a record collector magazine, and I write a Beatle column called Now We're 64. Um, I write write for a magazine called Copper. It's an audio magazine. It's available online at psaudio.com. PS Audio is a manufacturer, but they also have their own audio magazine called copper i write audio articles which are very different from anything that you and i will discuss it's my experience selling audio which i had many many years ago i tell a lot of stories there um, i write for ink magazine uh the uh the business magazine inc inc.com go online jj french you'll see my 36 articles in ink which are business articles yep. and my book will be coming out and twisted sisters catalog is being redone with added DVDs and songs and all sorts of stuff. And, we're, and the Christmas album, "A Twisted Christmas, will be available on vinyl this Christmas.
0: Very cool. Uh, you know, I'm going to be in uh, New York City on October 27th, so if you can, let's get together for a cup of coffee if you're around.
1: Absolutely, man. Call me, uh, email me, whatever. Send up a smoke signal. I will do uh, that. Love, love to see you.
0: All right, my friend. Okay, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. J.J. French. Till next time, take good care, folks.
1: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores
0: and on Amazon worldwide.